Well, if you follow the news, you're aware of an anthropological breakthrough that was news this earlier this week. They have found the missing link in human evolution. Again, it's been found. This particular fossil has characteristics that resemble a monkey, or they're saying a monkey lemur, or some combination of that, and a few that resemble the characteristics of human beings. The scientists that are working on this project have named this particular fossil Ida, I think after one of the scientists' daughters. And I note now a part of their news release this week. <clears throat> they say it has, among other things, opposable thumbs similar to humans, and unlike those found on other modern mammals. It has fingernails instead of claws, and by examining the structure of its hind legs, one of which is partly missing, scientists say that they can see evidence of evolutionary changes that would eventually lead to primates standing upright. And that ends the quote. I don't know about you, but I looked at these images and I magnified them as large as I could possibly uh, get them magnified. And it's way beyond me. I mean, just, that's just me. But it's way beyond me to determine how, how anyone can determine that Ida's thumbs were opposable. You know, that, mean, that means this. Monkeys can't do this. Humans can. That's what, that's what it's meant by opposable Thumbs, but then I, I'm, I fully admit my imagination that may not be quite as vivid as some of those who are evolutionary anthropologists, and I have a little fun with that, but that's not really the point. That's not the point. This fossil provides evidence only to those who are so steeped in their presuppositions as to origins that they are willing to find evidence at the expense of credulity. And I must let you on, on, you know, on one tiny little secret. Evidence is often found in scientific endeavor, in scientific study, just about the time that funding has run out and an application for new funding needs to be made. I don't know if that's the case here, but you need to know that's, that's how scientific endeavor often occurs. You also need to know that the team that was looking at this were all evolutionary anthropologists. They all started with presuppositions it doesn't surprise me at all that that's the case. But I'm sorry, even if it was all true, opposable thumbs just don't do it for me. Opposable thumbs don't, don't disprove the existence of God and don't prove Darwinism in any way. And so we're not going to shut it down. We're going to go ahead and have church next week. All is not over. Uh, we will meet, Lord willing. I've said numerous times as we've already begun the study of Genesis that this narrative was not written to answer all of our questions as to the how of creation. But just in case you're wondering, it does answer the macroevolution question. Genesis 1 does answer the macroevolution question. The answer is resounding no. That is not the way it happened according to the Scripture now, the scriptures don't support macroevolution of any kind, any form, whether atheistic or theistic. And by the way, good science doesn't support it either. But I am getting just a bit ahead of myself by making that statement. I'll address that more in the coming weeks as it comes up in our passage, particularly in the phrase, after their own kind, after their own kind, after their own kind. So we'll address it at that. So I, this is a study in Genesis, not in uh, Darwinism. So I'm going to do my best to discipline myself to stay on subject. But a few comments will be made at the appropriate times. I don't have that much discipline. Now, 
And I know it's raining, and I know it's very difficult to, to focus when, when God's creation is going on outside and all the thunder, but, but I invite you now to, to focus and concentrate and, and turn our attention to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So I invite you to open your Bibles there now with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. A key idea in Genesis, particularly in the first two chapters, but really it runs throughout the length of the book, a key idea in Genesis will be that the God who makes himself known to Israel by the name Yahweh and is their redeemer from bondage, both spiritual and physical, is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. He is the creator of everything, even those things that the current occupants of the land worshipped. Even those things that the people behind them, this great nation of Egypt, even the things that they worship, were created by the God of Israel who made himself known by the name Yahweh. Therefore, as long as I am with you, God says, you have nothing to fear, either from the Egyptians behind you or from the Canaanites in front of you. I even got distracted with that. (laughs) But fortunately, I have my finger on my place here, so I'm going to keep moving right along. (laughs) That's the application to us as well, isn't it? As long as we're rightly related to the God who created this universe, we have nothing to fear from any aspect of his creation. And as long as I have God, the God who created everything that is in existence, what more do I really need? As long as I am related to God, what more do I really need? Now we say, well, I need money, I need food, I need health, I need shelter, I need clothing. Yes, we do, but what more do we really need once we've got God? We've got the big problem settled there. If I lose my home and I've got God, I've still got Him. I'm still going to heaven when I die and I've got an eternal relationship with Him. If I lose my health, I still have Him. If I lose all my money, I've still got Him. So that's the application of Genesis. There were three dogmatic assertions that we made last week as we began the chapter, and these are the three. Genesis is history. It's not myth, and that includes the first 11 chapters. It's popular today to say Genesis, the history, the real history of Genesis really starts with chapter 12. I deny that categorically. Genesis starts as history in Genesis 1, verse 1. The second thing we said last week that I will say dogmatically is that the universe has been in existence for a limited period of time. God alone is infinite. Matter did not exist co-eternally with God. And I will say that dogmatically. The universe had a beginning. And the third thing that we said that we could say dogmatically was this, and that is God is both imminent and transcendent. He exists independently outside of his creation, but he also interacts with his creation. We will say that dogmatically as well. So those three things, because I've said a number of times, Genesis is not written to answer all of our curiosities. It will answer some of them. But there are some things we can say dogmatically before we ever start the subject. Genesis chapter 1, just like Psalm chapter 8, speaks to the majesty of God. When, when David looked at Genesis chapter 1 and then compared it with what he saw in the universe, he said, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he began the psalm that way, and he ended the psalm that way. So this passage begins in Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God. And the stress in this first verse is on God. God is the one. 
where the focus is as the scriptures open. The emphasis is on God. The first word, bereshit, which is translated in the beginning, is a temporal prepositional phrase with a noun in the absolute state. Now what that means is that it functions independently of any other word. And all of verse 1 is an independent clause and a complete sentence. Now that will mean more to you as we go along. It's an independent clause and a complete sentence. So Genesis 1, chapter 1, the, the bottom line to that is, is that this verse commits itself to an absolute beginning of everything outside of God. That's why I say only God is eternal. It's not like God existed eternal and, and eternally and matter existed eternally. And they coexisted eternally until God decided to do something with it. Genesis 1.1 says there was a time when only God existed. And then God will call into being everything outside of himself. So everything outside of God is something that's been created. That's what Genesis 1.1 commits itself to. In the beginning, God, and that's the emphasis. Whenever you read that from now on, that's the way I want you to read it. In the beginning, God created. The word for created there is bara. It's a Hebrew word. It's a very unique Hebrew word. But it's only one of several Hebrew words for God's creative activity. There's the word yatsar, which means to fashion, or asa, which is often translated to make, or bana, which is translated to build. And all of these words have God as the subject at one time or another in the Hebrew text. But the verb bara, the one that's in verse 1, bara, B-A-R-A, the word, this word bara only has God as the subject. We never have, we never have Abraham baraing something. And that's not the way you would say in Hebrew, but I'm making that into some sort of hybrid form. That doesn't happen. No man baras anything. Only God does that. Only God performs the action of this verb. And the result of the action is always something perfect, new, fresh, or whole. Perfect, new, fresh, or whole. It does not mean specifically, in verse 1, that God created something out of nothing. But that certainly seems to be the case here, and that's more explicitly revealed when we get to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, which reads, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. God spoke and it came into existence, so that what is seen was made out of things which are not visible. The word bara summarizes the work of God in producing what human beings never produce, or would even think to produce. In Genesis 1.1, the word is used of the act of God in creating the universe and everything in it. The phrase, the heavens and the earth, that ends that sentence, is a Hebrew figure of speech for the entirety of the universe. Everything. So there's God, and then there's God's creation. And if you're not God, you're part of God's creation. Lucifer would have done well to dwell on that point. You can't, you can't call yourself into being as God. It doesn't work that way. The Hebrew verb here is in the perfect tense. And by the way, I won't do this with every verse in the, in the study of Genesis, so don't be frightened about coming. But, but here we need to go over a bit of grammar, because these are two very difficult verses, as those who have spent a lot of time studying this can certainly attest. But the Hebrew verb here, barah, is in, the perfect, is in the perfect tense. The perfect use of bara, or create, may either indicate 
an event that precedes the main storyline, or it could be, it could indicate a summary of the storyline itself. Now, there are exceptions, two exceptions. One's at Exodus 19.1 and one's at Genesis 22.1. Those are the only two exceptions that I'm aware of. But the normal use of the perfect at the beginning of a pericope or a story is to denote an event that took place before the storyline began. That's the normal usage when it's in that construction. So to summarize, and this is where we ended up last week, we had to do it a bit hastily, so I wanted to review it this morning. Genesis 1.1 is a complete standalone sentence. Everything outside of God had an absolute beginning. Everything outside of God had an absolute beginning. The main verb, bara, B-A-R-A, is in the perfect tense, and in all likelihood references an event that has already been completed. In all likelihood. The word bara is only used of God's creative activity. Bara does not in itself speak of, of creation out of nothing, but the context here certainly allows for that understanding. And finally, we ended up last week by saying the heavens and the earth is a figure of speech which relates or refers to the entire universe and everything in it. Now, let me, let me cut something off at the past right now. Some people say, well, what about evil? You know, did God create evil? It's in the universe. No, evil is a perversion of something that God created. God created good. Man perverted that good and created evil or produced evil. So, no, God did not create evil. And now, on to verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. It would seem, it would seem, from the contents of verse 2, that something is drastically wrong at the outset of this narrative. At least it would seem that way. There are three words in verse 2 that generally are associated with something negative. Not always, but generally are associated with something negative. You can probably even pull them out of your English text if you look at it very carefully. Formless, void, and dark, or darkness. Formless, tohu, void, bohu, and darkness, hoshek. Tohu, bohu, and hoshek. There are exceptions to this, but the exceptions are rare. Tohu, for example, is used a number of times in Scripture, over 20, I believe. But bohu, the word bohu, is a relatively rare word, occurring only three times in Scripture, and in both of the other cases, just like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it's associated with the word tohu. So tohu itself, the first word, is used many times, but the second, bohu, is only used three times, and it's always used with tohu. So it's in, in Hebrew, it's tohu va bohu. You've heard that probably before. I know many of you, if not all of you, have studied this before, so I really appreciate your keen attention on something that you've already studied and have already formed opinions about. But there's only two other times that these two words are used together. And those two times are Jeremiah 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 23, and Isaiah 34, verse 11. Both of the other times that bohu is used, it's worth, used with tohu. In fact, the Jeremiah, passage, the Jeremiah passage constructs an antithesis to this creation account, tracing a dismantling of creation by the judgment of God. 
So this is why when some look at this first verse and we see this phrase, tohu va bohu, we know that the only other two times in scriptures where these words are used together, the only, only, only other two times these words are used in a judgment context. Now, in and of itself, that's not absolute validity, but it's something that has to be considered. In the only other two times they're used in a judgment context, and particularly in Jeremiah chapter 4, the judgment context is a judgment that God has rendered, and God is, in, in the vocabulary, they're undoing the creation that he had done. Instead of having a world that's inhabitable, now he's created it uninhabitable again, or he's rendered it uninhabitable again. So tohu vabohu, those two words are generally considered negative words, especially tohu vabohu together as a phrase. It's always considered negative. Now, I did read one thing that I can't help because some of you use this particular Bible. I won't call it out. But there's one particular Bible that recognizes that and then turns around in their last sentence and says, however, it's bad method, it's bad theological method to, to take the, meaning, the later meaning of a word and then attaching that to the first meaning of the word. I ran that by Ron Allen one time, and he laughed. He said, well, how in the world are you ever going to determine the first meaning of the word? You would never be able to determine in the beginning if you didn't know what those words meant in other contexts. So that's not nearly as strong of an argument as one particular very well-respected Bible in their note says. Here's the fly in the ointment. And this is a big fly. This is a big old horse fly. This is one of those big old biting horse flies. Here's the fly in the ointment. This is one of the things that makes this passage hard. Isaiah 45, 18 states that God did not create this earth. He did not bara this earth. Same verb. He didn't bara it tohu. Now, that's a fly. You see why? Because in verse 2, it is tohu. So if Isaiah 45, 18 says he didn't create it that way, it didn't bara it that way, then there's the dilemma that we're all faced with. When we look at this passage, these are two of the hardest verses for exegesis, I believe, in the entire scripture. And that's why Hebrew scholarship is all over the map with regard to their understanding of these verses. But that's a problem. Isaiah 45, 18 states that God did not create bara. He did not create this world a waste place. He did not create it tohu. And yet in verse 2, it is tohu. So what in the world are we going to do with that? Are there contradictions in scriptures? In the scripture, no, there are not. We just need to do our best to understand it. Those of you who are familiar with the gap theory, G-A-P, gap theory, uh, know that it is based on a translation of verse 2 that reads this way. And the earth became formless and void, and darkness was over the surface, surface of the deep. Now, that's called the gap theory, and, and most of you are familiar with that. That's, that's stating that there is a gap between verses 1 and verse 2 that could have been an innumerable, innumerable amount of time. The problem, and this is rife with problems, so that's why I asked for your uh, great focus as we begin this study. The problem is that while Hebrew grammar might allow that translation, might allow that translation, it is not at all normative for the present structure. So while Hebrew grammar may allow that tohu vabohu is not, a, is not a, a judgment phrase, it may allow that, it's certainly not normative, any more than to say that the earth became formless and void is allowed, but it is in no way normative. It's really difficult to come up with that. Therefore, the translation, the earth became formless and void, is rejected universally by Hebrew scholarship. Universally rejected. 
Now, I understand that rejection, and I agree with it. I've got to tell you, while we're listening to all the lightning, this, this is so funny. Because I've been preparing this lesson for at least three months. This particular one. Knowing that it was going to be one of the hardest lessons, if not the most difficult, that we have in Genesis. And isn't it, it, isn't it interesting <laughs> that we've got lightning popping all over the place, and we may very well lose electricity in a minute. So, what I'm going to ask you to do, we've only got just a short time left, I'm going to ask you to focus as well as you can, because this is probably the most technical lesson on Genesis that we'll have. But it will really help you if we can follow it. So, while it's distracting to me to try to work through this, and we'll get through this passage and see if we can make something of it. So, as I said before, Hebrew scholarship universally, at least to my knowledge, I couldn't find any Hebrew scholar that accepted the translation and the earth became formless and void. So, I understand that rejection. I understand why they reject it based upon grammatical grounds, grammatical grounds, and I agree with the rejection of that translation. And because the gap theory as it is called, in the minds of some, is inexorably tied with that translation, and the earth became formless and void. I would not assert, I, I, I disavow that, and I don't assert that Genesis teaches the gap theory per se. Now listen carefully. I don't assert that the, the Genesis teaches the gap theory per se, because the gap theory is inexorably bound up with that translation. At least that's where those who disagree with the gap theory, they, they won't let that one go. So I will say, let's let the, the, the thing that's called the gap theory, let's let it go. Because it's not based upon sound Hebrew grammar, at least if we have to do the grammar that way. However, and you knew there was one coming. There are these thorny issues that I cannot in good conscience sweep under the rug. And they are these. Tohu and bohu, the words we talked about a moment ago, when used together in the only other two places in Scripture where this occurs, describes a negative scene and one that is associated with judgment. One could argue that that's not the case here, but the onus would be upon the one taking that position to demonstrate while there would be a unique understanding of this phrase, which is significantly differentiated from the other only two uses in Scripture. Do you see what I'm expressing here? You could say that tohu babohu does not indicate judgment here, but the onus would be on you then to, 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 to demonstrate then what does it mean and how would you come up, how would you validate that meaning when the only other two places it is used is in a judgment context. That's a problem. Secondly, darkness is generally a negative term in Scripture. And in verses 3 and 4, we see that this is the very first thing that is corrected in God's creative work, which at least gives some validity to the notion that it should be considered at least less than positive in verse 2. And again, perhaps the most troubling issue that we have to deal with is the testimony of Isaiah, that God did not create the earth tohu. So there are these thorny issues that all have to be synthesized. The wording of Genesis 1 verse 2 indicates that the world as it is in this state must be shaped and peopled before it can be pronounced good. Now that's something that all Hebrew scholarship agrees with. The following narrative shows how God brought this order 
into the world from its primitive condition of desolation and waste to fullness and order. The Hebrew scholar scholar Al Ross puts it this way. Verse 2 does not describe the results of divine creation. But a result of sorts, or a chaos of sorts, at the earliest stages of the world. Again, Alan Ross, verse 2 does not describe the results of divine creation, but a chaos of sorts at the earliest stages of the world. So we have this dilemma. We have this dilemma. It is not the purpose of Genesis to tell us how this chaos came to be. Nor, and listen to this carefully, because this is one that I know a lot of you are interested in, nor does verse 2 answer the question as to how old the earth is. doesn't do it. It may give us a a hint or a clue, but we can't stand dogmatically on that from verse 2. But, if we understand creation, or angelic creation, to have occurred in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and if we can posit a fall of Satan that brought about the chaos we find in verse 2, then Genesis 1 will describe a recreation or God's first act of redemption, salvaging his world and creating all things new. Now, I said, if we can understand that angels were created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The scriptures never tell us specifically when angels were created. The scriptures do give us a clue, however, and that clue is found in Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. I'll give you just a short moment to turn there if you'd like to. Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. Now, this is going to be germane to my argument. This is not a rabbit trail. The Bible never specifically says when angels were created, but Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7 gives us a clue. These verses read this way. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You'll recall that before this, Job had gotten a little sassy with God. He had backtalked God a little bit. He had accused God of doing something wrong. He actually was implicitly accusing God of wronging him. So then God is going to answer Job back. And this is how he does it. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, if I was Job, I'd have been scared right then. (laughs) That's not a good way to to start the conversation. It's like, who is this talking to me and doesn't know what he's talking about? That's how we would put that in modern English. And he says, now, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Now, this is dripping with divine sarcasm, you can probably tell. And then he asks him a series of questions. We won't go over them all, just the first couple. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth. Job's answer is I wasn't even created yet. Neither was Adam. Tell me if you have understanding. When I did all this, where were you? Second, in verse 5, who set its measurements since you know? You see, the point is, if you're going to backtalk me, you better be as smart as me. If you're going to act like I did you wrong, you better have all the facts that I have. That's what he's saying. I love this passage. Anytime you want to get just a little bit arrogant, open to Job. And that'll, that'll beat the arrogance right out of you. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? And then in verse 7, the verse that I want to point out, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. 
Now, it's debatable about the morning stars there, but the term sons of God, when used in Job, is speaking of angelic beings. When, when, where were you, where were you, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Now, this verse tells us, or at least implies to us, well, it tells us, it doesn't imply to us, that the angels were there. They were there when this event happened. And I think it is fairly agreed to by all, no matter what side of the debate you're on, that the event is what happens in Genesis chapter 1. When this event happened, the angels sang at that event. So if they sang, they had to already exist. That's not, I'm not trying to be hard here. <laughs> that, that's just, that's, I'm trying to state the obvious. If they sang there, they had to already exist. So while the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, explicitly tell us, it gives us a fairly decent clue that angels were created early on. And the only early on before verse 2 is verse 1. So sometime before verse 2, angelic beings were created. So if they're present at the creation of the earth or this reformulation, whichever one you want to take in, then their existence had to be prior to that event. And I would take it that that's included in what is expressed in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's the way I take it. How long ago this occurred and how long it take, took Satan to fall, I cannot say. The scriptures don't tell us, so I won't hazard a guess on that. But as we look at verse 2, and as it appears that something negative is in view, something that if we were to consider the terms tohu and bohu, which elsewhere, again, when they're used in close proximity, imitate a judgment. And then I look at the Scriptures, and I think I see the only judgment that the Scriptures tell us of at all that occurred before mankind, or that could have occurred before mankind, because you can't judge mankind if they're not created yet. At least I guess maybe some people might postulate that, but it, it makes no sense. The only judgment that could possibly fit in there is the judgment of Satan that's expressed in Ezekiel 28. In Isaiah 14, yeah, I, I've said a lot of it's possible, it seems, it appears. And there's a reason for that, and I'll tell you that in just a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. So we've got these three negative words that are somewhat troubling. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God here is the Holy Spirit. It's not a wind. It's not a holy wind. As some, I think, have speculated. But this is the third member of the Trinity. The third member of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit. And he is hovering, or moving, in preparation for the creative activity that will occur in verse 3 and following. So with all this in mind, let me propose a possible scenario as to the events of creation. In eternity past, at some point that I cannot uh, tell you in terms of its time, but in eternity past, God created the universe out of nothing, including angelic beings. At some point in time, subsequent to that event, Satan fell, causing God to render judgment on his creation. Was planet Earth the center of angelic creation Prior to Satan's fall? Well, we can't say. But given the circumstances that present themselves in verse 2, it wouldn't be an off-the-wall guess to think that planet Earth was something significant in the realm of angelic creation. 
We can't say for sure, though. In verse 3, then, God begins his restorative creative activity, dispelling the darkness by the word of his mouth. And then over a six-day period, God will shape the world into a place that is no longer uninhabitable, but has been created anew. In my view, that best fits all of the biblical evidence and is most easily validated using Scripture. I'm not using science right now, but using Scripture. To be fair, I will say at this point, other views exist as to how to synthesize this data. And I'm fully aware that some in our audience today, as as well as some who are listening at a later time on video or audio, strongly hold to other potential scenarios. And I respect that. I'm not just saying, I really do respect that. Among those who are considered to be Hebrew scholars, there is no orthodox consensus regarding the specifics of the creation event, with the exception that macroevolution was not involved in the creation of mankind. That's the only consensus that they come up with from the grammar itself. But that's so important, I want to say it one more time so that you make sure that you hear it, or at least have the opportunity. There is no orthodox consensus regarding the specifics of the creation event, with the exception that macroevolution was not involved in the creation of mankind. So it would be wise to keep that in mind in the coming days. It's been my experience that the dogmatism of some of those scholars who who assume certainty with regard to the specifics of the creation scenarios, that dogmatism is in inverse proportion to a real knowledge of what the text actually reveals. We have to do the best we can with the data with which we've been presented. But while we do our best to fill in as many blanks as we can, we must keep in mind the indisputable message of Genesis chapter 1. And with regard to this, there is consensus. It's really amazing. I wouldn't want you to spend the money, but if you could go out and buy every, every Hebrew commentary on the book of Genesis and just lay them out on a table, you'll find that there is very little, if any, consensus about any of the details of the passage. And these are Hebrew scholars. But there's one thing that they do have a consensus on, that Orthodox Hebrew scholarship does find a consensus on, and it's this. God created the heavens and the earth. That is the consensus. God God did it. It didn't just happen. Therefore, God exercises sovereign control over it. The sovereign majesty of God shines through Genesis chapter 1. There is a consensus about that, and that's what we should grasp. It's not going to offend me if you don't grasp the view that I just presented to you. Now, if you're going to be dogmatic about it and say Bruce is wrong, then you better come with some ammunition. I just ask you to study it thoroughly first, but it's not going to offend me if you take a different view. But what will trouble me greatly is if you leave here so focused on that that you miss the big picture. And the big picture is that God did it. 
He created the heavens and the earth. It didn't just happen. He is sovereignly majestic. And so therefore, we don't live in a purposeless universe. There is meaning and purpose in everything in life. Because this didn't just happen. And if we're rightly related to the God who created the universe and everything in it, then we have nothing to fear from any aspect of God's creation. This affects how we live. And on that, there is consensus. Across the board theologically and across the board exegetically. There is consensus on that. And let me close by giving you this challenge, by issuing you this challenge. If we have, by grace through faith, a personal relationship in Jesus Christ, and I, and I trust that you do. I'm looking out over this audience and I recognize pretty much every face here. I assume that at some point in time in your life, you have personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, not of works. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should never perish but have everlasting life. I assume you've done that, but if you haven't, consider those words. But if you've done it, let me speak to you for just a moment as we close our time out this morning. If you've done that, then you have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. Think about that for a moment. And in my view, you cannot lose that personal relationship. In the view of the scriptures, you cannot lose that personal relationship with Jesus. So if we have that, and we can't lose it, and he's the one that did all this, regardless of your theory or your possible scenario as to how it happened, if that's the case... What more do we really need? C.S. Lewis said, if the, the person who has Jesus and everything else really doesn't have any more than the one who has Jesus alone. Once you've got Him, you've got everything that you need. Everything. Now I know in our minds we're thinking, well I need, I need health, I need money to pay my bills, I need to make that car payment I need to make sure my retirement plan is intact. I I need all these things. Yes, we do, but that's on a completely different level, my friend. This passage, these two verses, can change your life forever. If If you'll buy into this, if you'll allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of its truth, that once you have a relationship with the God who created everything, you've got it. And you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear from death. Someone could take your clothes, your home, your 401k, and if you've still got God, you've got everything you need. And so do I. I would love to have another building so we didn't have to come set up every Sunday morning and take down. But we've got God. It would be nice, but we've got God. And you do too. Individually. We have him corporately. You have him individually. So let's don't mix that up. What more can we really want? If we've got God. And we do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you.
We thank you for this revelation, as, as difficult as it is, exegetically. We thank you that you are there and that you have not been silent and that you have expressed yourself to us through nature, through your Son, through your Word. And we thank you that you cared enough about us, as flawed as we are, to send your Son to die as a substitute for us so that we could be related to you in a personal way that will never end. Thank you for that. Help us to remember it when times get tough, when our bodies hurt, when our pockets are empty, and when our stomachs hunger. Help us to remember that if we have you, we have everything that we need. Help us, Father, through your Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen.